Uh, we started this uh, this year again. Uh, we have done a few couple of them, and then uh, that's why I ask you. I reach out to people who actually I believe that can be you know like uh, inspired to listen. Definitely, you know you have. I I met you when you were in Tetler. Yes. And now, uh, what do you explain to our viewers and listeners? Actually, what do you do? Okay, so when you met me, I was um, the senior dining editor at Tatler, um, which is in Hong Kong. It's a luxury uh, magazine that goes into everything in lifestyle, you know, everything from fashion to jewelry to food. There was quite a bit of a following in terms of the dining coverage for Tatler, um, and it's still it's still going on. So I've done this for five and a half years, and then yeah. I decided one day that you know. Hey, how about you know doing some freelancing? You know, I've I've never as a writer done any freelancing before, and it's you know it's sort of weird because at that time all of my friends, all of the people that I know of, they have already done full time and they have been successful doing freelancing, and I've always thought that hey, how about trying that? You know, this could be something new for me. This could be you know this will. Come to me as you know a new set of challenges, and it's also quite different because you know as you work full time, you have everything on the schedule, everything you kind of already arranged for you and by you. But if you do freelance, you pick up the kind of work that you want to do and you're keen to do, and you know how you are going to invest. Your time and arrange your time a little bit better. So it's all part of a good training to become a more um, productive worker. So I think that's how I, I I think that as a startup is hard to do freelance. I don't know. I I think because if once until unless you don't know the discipline, you don't know the you know, the way of doing it as a big company, then it's hard for you to do uh, freelance. So you have done. Uh, experience and uh, work in a company like Tatler or maybe some other company for like more than five six years, and then you decide to do freelancing. But in in your job, in your version, uh, can you just break it down? So what actually you do? Let's say if someone want to do a, a, a writing, you write for food only, food and beverage only, or about uh. let's say some luxury <laughs> items or like brand. I think I think food, uh, food and drink and lifestyle essentially are my thing, like yeah, these yeah. three things. I think in terms of the strength, it's mostly food. I have mostly to say. food. Yeah, yeah, I see your Instagram. Yes. All about food. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's easier too because it's... Do you think it's easier? <laughs> I've, you know, I, I've always been a food person. Yeah. And, and I've always... this There's this something that always stuck with me about work and also, you know, profession. Is that... If you enjoy it, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, definitely. When it doesn't feel like work, you do it well. So you know, even with COVID, during the you know the beginning of first, second, and third wave um, of COVID, when I was doing full time, it still feels difficult every single day because you know all your teammates are at home. You know they were oh, working the, from the home. Sound, sorry, just sound is just gone. Oh, now it's come back. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so everyone is, you know, working from home, and there's not a lot of going out, and you know, it it feels difficult, but you stuck with it because it's what you like to do, right? 
So this is only part of the challenges that we face as a full-time, but as yeah. a freelancer now, um, I started freelance when there is um, no traveling. So it becomes very difficult to travel. Everybody at my old office was saying, hey, you quit a, at a really weird time. <laughs> like normally, people would finish with their full-time job yeah. and then they would take a, you know, Break buy a go. ticket and yeah, just yeah. fly off somewhere. And I thought the timing was a little bit questionable, but um, but it was also a great way for us to kind of start something because, like, if I don't start it now, like, I, I'll be in the comfort of doing, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I still manage to do my food writing. You know, I contribute currently. I contribute to, you know, different newspapers and magazines, yeah. uh, print, uh, like as in the physical magazine, and also online. So so that's, I, I've become a little bit more active and proactive, if you say, um, to be, you know, I try to write in different magazines, like different publications. Uh, and I also did Chinese as well. So it's bilingual, so English and Chinese. So you you write mostly about the food on uh, a printed magazine and stuff, right? And also you mentioned me earlier of um, of of record that you also do interview uh, like uh, uh, in a video or maybe a podcast kind of stuff. Uh, I, I I've done I've done maybe two episodes yeah. of radio before and like in my life like this is literally the like the third time <laughs> I've ever done it. Um, it's it's very different. And for a podcast sort of setup, it's yep. it's still a little bit un unfamiliar for me. I've listened to podcasts for years, yeah. and 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 like you would imagine, it's also all food podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a great way to learn, and it's also a great um, outlet for you to learn. Um, you know, you can just you know press a few buttons on your phone, and then you'll be immediately drawn to stories that are happening, say, in the states, and also like it could be BBC, um, you know, around the world. It could be you know anywhere in the world. As long as they record something, you can share, and you can learn from it. And you know, this is all part of you know enriching the food coverage yeah. for yourself. Like, if I want to know more about Nepalese cuisine, then there must be something that we can listen to in Nepal, and then we can follow up with, you know, searching it on the internet, or, or also um, friends that are Nepalese, and they may be able to tell me more about, yeah, you know, about what the they know about the cuisine, or what they would imagine. Oh, uh, this is not it like here's <laughs> how my mother does it like yeah I, i've had experiences like these where you know we we heard something from um a program that's about um pasta and yeah, pizza yeah, yeah. and then i came to an italian friend it's a chef um and he told me like oh this is not good like this is like totally irrelevant um we don't do it like that and then he went on to show me at the restaurant this is how you do it and then they did the whole demo so it became sort of like an, a, a process a learning process for us so you you go one after the other and then bit by bit you gain more knowledge and then you realize that this whole thing you can make it into a story it will be an interesting story for a lot of people 
But more importantly for me, this is also how you learn things. Um, it's that there are so many different facets, like processes, yes. that you can take up. It's no longer just open up a book and or then watching it on the internet yeah, on yeah. YouTube. Because you now also know people in Hong Kong or in Macau or in the States or in India that do these things. Same thing. And all in different way. Do, yeah, in different way. And they will show you. They are more than happy to show you. And all you need to do is to you know, go online, you know, go on Instagram and you know, text someone and say, hey, this, is, this looks great. Can you show me how? And this is also how you kind of connect yourself with a different community. There's the same community in different places. Yeah. So geography and distance no longer matter because all the distance there is, is online. I, I, you're right. I think um, we can definitely learn from YouTube, uh, definitely learn from the books. But the thing is, we get to know much better way when we like face to face, like more like, you know, like the person who share with you the experience he had or she had with uh, their family cooking or maybe family drinking or can be at uh, their grandma or grandfather, which is totally, I agree. I don't ask you about, you mentioned you do uh, uh, English press and Chinese press. You study in Hong Kong, you born in Hong Kong, you, uh, what is your background? So I'm a local Hong Kong I grew up in Hong Kong, so all the way until I was form five, that would make me 17. Form five, 16, yes. 17? 16, yeah. 17, yeah. and then I went to uh, the States and Canada to finish off um, high school and uh, university. And university. So I was in Toronto, when I, Toronto, when I was in, uh, <laughs> sorry, can't shake it off. How do you it's, say, how do you say, Toronto or Toronto? Okay, so... The Hong Kong way is Toronto. Toronto, okay. Yeah, but the Canadian way, Tor I think, <laughs> not to offend anybody in Canada, is um, Toronto. Toronto. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to kind of like drag it along. No, but I, I think it took me quite a number of years to kind of shake off, um, you know, any accent. Accents. Um, you know, I. Yeah, you just basically you move right into you know each. Um, community and, and place so when I was in Toronto that's usually that's the place that I pick up on food the most um, I did not study journalism yeah. I was in psychology I was going to ask actually <laughs> I was in psychology I was in psychology so it's it's all about you know not about reading minds so no? I, I still cannot I psychology reading minds so you go to the bars in Russia and read chef's mind is that like, oh what are you planning to tell me <laughs> No, they, they have they have something else for that. It's called Instagram. You can do that over Instagram now and, and Facebook and you know whatever social media yeah. channels they use. But um, it's 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 hardly ever about reading the minds of people. It's more like you know understanding how things work. You know, for a lot of people, it's common sense. You know, the psychology thing, you know, how the mind works, how you uh, go through thought processes, like how you go through reasoning, for instance. Um, I had a really, I'm, I'm really appreciating that I took this. Yeah. Even though in reality, in real life, in professional life, you hardly ever use it. Does it help? No. Um, I may need help eventually, but you know it's um, it's not like everybody. You realize that everybody is you know uh, a little bit 
mental at some point. Everybody. everybody. I, I, I think, I think that with COVID going on, everybody is a little <laughs> bit more mental than they yeah, were before. Yeah, they are there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so psychology takes me into writing. I've always loved writing, but with psychology, you get to write more in a more professional, um, more of a scholarly way. But at the same time, there's also the school newspaper. Where oh. the, the, in the university, there's also the school newspaper where you practice more of a journalist type of writing. You cover stories even within the campus. You know what's happening in the campus um, regarding to you know there are different cultural festival like the communities what they're doing. You know there might be like a CNY thing happening to the Chinese people, and then there are you know Diwali things happening to the Indian people. Like there are. Different things, and uh, for a university, it it is all about the diverse cultures, and especially in Toronto, where everything is so all together. So you get to realize that you get to understand a lot more on the other, um, say, uh, ethnic community. You know their, you know, traditions, their kind of lifestyle, their food, obviously. Uh, and in Toronto, you definitely get. You know, different flavors of different foods all over the city. It's, it's, it's coming from the student who actually uh, went there to study their cultural stuff, right? I think the cultural stuff—it's an additional form of studying because these are the things that you don't get to study within. Yeah. Um, say your classes. Your classes will take you to all the professional things that you learn from school. You get your grades, exams, uh, certifications, whatever. But it's it is about going into the city. You know, living the city. Yeah. And uh, living the place that you, where you spend your most time in. Um, I think this is the kind of experience that you want when you are abroad um, to be able to see. Different cultures and experience them, like and what's better and more fun than eating and you know, experiencing food to learn. You know, it's a good way to go into a new culture by eating. I have a. We have some guests previously that we. I asked them how they feel when they come to first Hong Kong, especially coming from um, Australia, from state. Oh, So they share their experience, but they came when they're grown up. They came here to work. What was your experience to first time move from your um, home city from Hong Kong to uh, America? Which city was in America? Uh, Minnesota, Minnesota. I was in Minnesota for a year and a half. Yeah. So how was your experience as a 16 years uh, of uh, kind of you know finding? <laughs> It was tough. Um, well, I was lucky because um, I have family, and I have an uncle, they, they live there. an aunt yeah. that lives like their families live in Toronto and also in Minnesota. So I live with them, and at the same time, I was able to kind of uh, get involved in all the school things, happenings, you know, when I was you know yeah. in the school states in Canada. So it was a little bit easier easing from. Family yeah. speaking Chinese and also English, because their children speak English. So, so it it will be a little bit easier for us to be kind of 
slowly easing from like a Chinese speaking family, but still having a more American or Canadian lifestyle. And then you're slowly easing into, you know, going to school where all your friends are not Chinese. I remember when I was in um, Minnesota, I was in a public school. I was yeah. enrolled in a public school. And out of the entire public school, there were only like five Asian faces. Really? Um, How many students were there in school, like um, total? I think out of three grades, so, so because it's high school, so 10th, 11th, 12th grades, I think it was like over a thousand people. And because it was a public school and they like everybody was already pretty much all very American. Um, but Asian faces, there were only like five. five people. And there was like one person that's Thai, one person that's Vietnamese, and then there were... So like mixed max of all... Yeah, they, I, I was the only really odd person who is Chinese and can speak Chinese and like Mandarin and Cantonese. So for them, it was all, oh, you come from a place, you know, that's very unfamiliar to us. And, you know, this is... This, begun, this um, became sort of like um, another learning opportunity is that I get to meet someone who is from the Midwest. You know, I get to understand what it is about the Midwest that's kind of beyond basketball and hockey, yeah. which is what we watch, you know. And um, yeah, I think it's a very different kind of... There's a little bit of culture shock that you're trying to remain kind of Chinese to the core. Yeah. But also you also find. need to take up this foreign culture as part of what you are and who yeah. you are if you want to survive in this country. But having said that, moving from U.S. to Canada, Canada. was easy because they were in the same continent yeah. and you pretty much watch the same And also TV you and already you know? adapt the, the you know, like living outside of a home city. Yeah. I, I, I wonder how um, our kids feel, like my kids, because they are Nepalese. Hmm? <laughs> I mean, by um, by their ancestor with their uh, parents' side, but they're born in Hong Kong. Yeah, and they go to international school. Hmm. That will be difficult, right? But um, th- well, I think I think currently that might be there might be a little bit of a mix. Like they don't know when they might be switching from being at home Nepalese to international everyone else, you know, and also local. And the local, yeah. And local community where it, it could be more than Nepalese, I mean, Chinese, English, whatever. Yeah, which was they speak Cantonese. So yeah. In Chinese, yeah. Um, so there will be a little bit of mixing and sometimes I think it takes a little bit of adjustment uh, for you to find one way to kind of put everything together. <laughs> I mean, as an adult, it's a lot harder. But as an adult, there's also the convenience because you can adjust Uh, when you're a child, when you're going to school, you kind of want to um, condition yourself to adapt to it as quickly as possible. And it's possible as well, I think, yeah. Rather than when you grow up and you have to suddenly go and learn some other people's culture, it'll be tough probably. I think so. I have never experienced... No, I know. I experienced when I came to Hong Kong when I was uh, 16, 17. But for me, it was, again... When I came to Hong Kong, uh, the only people I was hanging out with all Nepalese, the people where I was living with Nepalese, the, the, our community where I go for, uh, let's say, shopping is Nepalese. So it's like pretty strong, oh. our communities that I, I wanted to. So I, I went to uh, learn um, uh, Mandarin and Cantonese class. That was the first thing I joined. But it's very hard for me to just learn when I already grow up. 
uh, in, in school for like one hour and going back and speaking in our language, right? It's never really um, easy, easy for that. But people keep saying, um, you know, if you want to learn English, watch Friends. Um, it helps. <laughs> you know, it helps. But um, for me, it's not about watching um just friends like TV it's um, I, I did this thing where I quickly pick up American English um, within that a year and a half like just a couple months um, because I love watching TV with my family so what we did is we had um, duct tape yeah you know that the black stuff yeah, yeah. and then you kind of um, there's the TV and then you tape the, the subtitle the, yeah you tape the subtitles really but what you can because in the states they don't really show the subtitles but there's an option that you can like one of those smart TV thing you can like press some buttons and then they will show up for the, with subtitles but you tape the subtitles that's uh, so <laughs> you will be forced to, to understand, understand it so you, you try with something that's kind of a little bit easier um, go with um, you know, it could be anything from child, like children's TV, like, I don't know, Dora the Explorer and Sesame Street. They will be kind of easy to understand. Yeah. Um, you know, series, TV series like Friends, you know, it's a little bit more adult. Uh, so you will, th- these are the things that you will learn to speak about and learn to kind of style your speech. And then there's also the news. The news is the hardest because you come to experience and learn everything, you know, all the names of the presidents and all the names of the places in Chinese. And then all of a sudden, all and everything got flipped. And then they were talking really quickly and there are no subtitles. So you're basically forced to understand really quickly. And immediately through, you know, watching a couple of months of this, um, you learn the language. Yeah. You just have to force yourself. And reading is the same thing. You just have to kind of stick with it. And, you know. I think reading is, uh, uh, that's like a extreme level. <laughs> first, understanding and speaking is actually first thing I think is, is I, w- I wouldn't say easier. I would say it's much um, feasible for people who mm-hmm. just start. But writing is reading and that is uh, because it's not only about because the the sound is sound right if i if i say a i know a but if i if you write a you have to memorize it's not a, you're not here that's a memory <laughs> is it memory but if you need to write for a living or say um, if you need to communicate through writing then you have to learn it like it, I think it has some sort of um, pressure that you give yourself that if you have to do it, like if you have to do it for work or to earn money or, you know, you know if you have to survive in that culture, you have to learn the language. And you learn the language, this will be like to be able to survive in that community. It's a good motivation for you to learn quickly. Quickly, right? So uh, when I, I thinking about writing, uh, uh, I wanted to ask you: so when you write, hmm? you uh, decide what kind of people is gonna read. Because I tell you, uh, uh, even English as well, right? There is so many types of English. Although you write English, like as you said, some English are easy to understand. I give you an example: uh, Ben Michael learns to rock. 
style. And man, that's is so good. Like you know the the, yes. the 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 words they use is understand. If you go some other band, let's say some so there's a way of writing. Okay, this one will be a general population mm-hmm. who uh, non English speaker. Okay, this one is go to uh, a general population in Chinese maybe. Uh, a middle-aged people like maybe I don't know is, is that a thing in Chinese as well yes like there are there's a vast strong the, with the words that you know like kind of a writing of poetry yes um, in music um, I don't know enough about music um, say lyrics but in terms of say music um, there's a way that's conversational more colloquial yeah. that's usually not put in lyrics and then there's something that is more of um, kind of everyday writing. Yeah. The writing kind. You know, the same kind that you will see in newspapers um, and also in magazines. That is usually the kind of mus- um, kind of words and phrases that you will use in, you know, media and also in music, ly- lyrics. Uh, and then there's like the old, really old kind of Chinese, like, you know, the Chinese opera things. Like that kind of interpretation and phrases are used in the older times. Like they are, like, nobody is ever going to speak that with word. those phrases. Like it, nobody will be able to understand it. It's, it's all... Even you can't understand? Well, if you put that into words... I probably can guess based on the kind of words and where they are. Like it goes into exactly. this whole syntax and everything. But it's if you go into trying to make a sentence out of it, it probably wouldn't make much sense. Yeah. Like, and people would think, oh, this guy is like kind of all pretentious. Like, <laughs> who's going to speak like that? I mean, um, you know, no. I think that the key to no, using I, I, sentences I, is to have people yeah, understand. Sorry, it, you right? I, I make fun of all the uh, Nepalese people who don't understand those kind of Nepalese because uh, there is a, a dictionary in our country, right? So, which is, uh, uh, they have very specific word, very, mm. very specific word. Like, I can't guarantee neither my parents understand. It's just like you know, like those are. So I was, I was wondering, when you say you're writing, when you write about the food, what is your targeted uh, 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 reader? There are they the the one who understand the opera style, like a back in old style, or they're the one who understand the the you know there's I'm sure there's slang right yeah. in writing as well. I okay, let's let's go with English first. Yeah. English is the main thing that I'm writing for. I think the average reader. Will be who will read, say, a normal English article on, say, if you go on Google search, yeah. uh, say you search for something, and then say um, chicken, chicken, for instance, you use chicken as an example. You um, go on Google search and search chicken, and then you click on the first 10 articles. Um, those are the people that I write for. Okay. You, know, you, want, you want things that are um, simple. Simple enough, yeah. But it depending on the context and also the kind of writing that you are doing. So even if um, you are writing about food, there's also writing about restaurants for the people who will go to these restaurants or people who want to go to these restaurants. Um, the intended audience will always be reminded, you know, to the reader that you know this is a piece of writing about restaurants. Um, about this restaurant. So we would imagine um, you will either be interested in going already 
or hopefully when you read the story, when you read the writing, you will want to go. If you if it makes you hungry, I've, I've always said that. If it if a piece of writing, food writing, makes you hungry, or at least get you to search that subject that to you know with more information about All that, right. I have succeeded, and I would like to think that you know I've done some part of doing that. Um, over the course of you know however many years yeah. that I've been doing it, um, yeah. So those are like when you write about food, it usually have you know a different tone. Say it could be something of discovery. You know, you discover a new thing. You know, I just try this new uh, restaurant serving really innovative sushi, or you know, or, or not innovation at all. It could be something that's really traditional that. A lot of people haven't done it before, or a lot, of, a lot of people refuse to try this method because you know it took four days to make. You know, it could be like that. So there is a sense of discovery, then, and then there will be something that's a little bit more investigative. Yeah. So like we are all a little bit like Nancy Drew. You know, there's this chicken. We have heard about this chicken for so long, but nobody has ever tried it. Hey, by the way, there is a place in Hong Kong that has that chicken. I'm going there now. And then we, you know, we do all this interview. You know, you research and also kind of you also eat the chicken, and then you know you come up with a piece of writing again with you know some form of discovery, some form of reasoning, and also you know experiential the experiential element where you you tell people what you experienced. And hopefully that will inspire them to form their own opinion, and also to find their own experience based on the writing. Based on the writing and yeah. reading, that is for English. That is English. Is, is that exactly copy paste to the Chinese? No, um, it would be easier. <laughs> Trust me, it would be so much easier for me to just do a direct flip from English into Chinese. But it almost does not work like that. Um, translation. I'm not an expert in translation per se, but I would say I try my best to try to write two copies, which a lot of my friends who are in editorial would say this is way too much work, <laughs> and it is a lot of work. But if you translate things, um, it again it all goes back to television. Yeah, is that if you have friends. The TV program, you read the subtitles. Everything is in English. It's very everyday. This is how people speak. And then if you flip it into Chinese, if you do it word for word, it doesn't it make sense. Have that essence. Um, oh. They wouldn't translate the humor. They wouldn't translate the culture. There will be phrases that are too technical and too old style opera and colloquial in English. That you cannot translate into the essence of whatever language that you try to write in. So um, I think the basic uh, level of doing good translation is being able to flip from English into Chinese and then Chinese back into English. But as a more seasoned translating person, you should be able to translate more out of it. Say you will need to use. A more 
fitting cultural space or fitting cultural uh, phrases to describe what they want to say. Okay. Um, and it's hard because you that means you will also need to be very well versed with the culture that you're translating into, say Chinese. Yeah. There might be certain keywords or certain slangs that people use here uh, that you know you can use the, this phrase to replace that. There are always going to be phrases like that that makes it challenging. But for a reader, if they manage to read it, you say. Hey, what's that phrase? I didn't know of it. But if you were in the know, if you know that culture well, and you know that phrase, you'll realize, oh my God, this person really did make an effort into doing the translation because this is not a usual phrase. Yeah, it's just not like like copy paste. You also add the phrases, you add the slangs, you add some of the words. As you now I understand. Sometimes I watch um, a, a movie with the different subtitle mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense but it just because I was like what is this so they tried to make that let's say maybe a, a, someone will give give you example uh, Stephen Chow in Hong Kong <laughs> right in a funny way they give example or someone else in America like you know like kind of like giving yeah. oh this is the funny guys yes um, that is the expert like, I would want to be like that you know, I would want to become like this is to be able to um, say I watch an American television show um, and then they say something and then you'll be able to translate for the Chinese or the Hong Kong population. They are essentially all all different, you know, in terms of the mainland culture and the Hong Kong culture. Um, they were they perceive things differently. So sometimes the ha-ha funny in American TV, it really is funny to us, but not so much to other people. And then there will be some other instances where Chinese humor may not be translated in anything that are remotely funny to British, for instance. Like it has nothing to do with um, the way it was perceived. It was just... It's just not funny to these people or other people or, you know, or, or maybe it's uh, inside jokes culturally. Yeah. Um, I think there are very few um, instances where everyone finds the same thing funny. I mean, except for maybe Mime or Mr. Bean. Yeah. That's Which like is universal, yeah. universal yeah. funny. Universal. But it, that has to be something that's kind of beyond ver, uh, beyond verbal. Um, that's more of an action or... More of action, like a, I would say. More of know, action. Gestures. Like, yeah, gestures. You know, clowns. Like, yeah. there are so many people, oh, they were afraid of clowns. They, they didn't find them particularly funny. funny. Right. <laughs> and, and same, I, I think that that's the same with, with food and drink as well. You know, I may like... Um, a certain fruit on a pizza, there are people who will say absolutely not. not yeah. Right? Like, I mean, we're not here to talk about that, but this is just an example. Um, there will be... What, like, what is your preference? You like pineapple in a pizza? <laughs> mm, I've had it with Lorenzo, you know, Antinori. Um, I've had it. Uh, I've had it, but I find it, like a lot of things, is that... Whenever there's like a radical choice of pizza topping or you know food combination, it has to be properly made. Like if you think it through, 
on how you can play out the strength of that element. Say, let's go with pineapple. You know, pineapple is a fruit. It's a tropical fruit. It's very juicy. It's it makes it makes very watery filling of anything. So so if you put it in a pie, it will have a lot of juice coming out. If you cook it with caramel, a lot of juices will come out. Uh, if you dry it, if you dehydrate it, it becomes kind of so it's tough. hard. Yeah, hard to chew. Yeah, it becomes hard to chew. So in order for you to be able to put it on a pizza, you will have to learn the best way for the consumer to bite into the pizza and to be able to taste the pineapple texture and flavor. To and the pineapple will also have to work with the toppings. I think. Essentially, this is way too much work for a lot of kitchen team because, hey, if we want pineapple in the pizza, we'll just yeah. you know just put the canned pineapple. Yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't make that nope. doesn't make sense because you know, you have all the syrup, you yeah, have all yeah, this, yeah, yeah. it becomes soggy, and then it becomes kind of either too dry or it doesn't match with the sausage, and then. It, there can be like a million things that go. If around. you want to, if you want to find out the the mistake, but what I wanted to ask you, since you're a food expert, that we know, I have I have a, I have a huge debate with my friend. Okay. So what do you think? What is the real pizza then? <laughs> This is not the topic, but Uh-oh. you know why? Because yeah. I personally love uh, the uh, the duck pizza. You know, like yeah. pizza and uh, with the um, hoisin sauce and the, yeah. the slice of duck breast. Mm-hmm. And they said that's not a pizza. I was like, but. Actually, it's it's just same thing how cars or how cycle bicycles evaluate by time, right? I don't know what is the real pizza because I never went to Italy, but I don't know what is this the real pizza. People say, oh, the New York pizza is the best pizza. Is it New York pizza? The the <laughs> pizza uh, uh, there is like pineapple pizza is the best. There are some people like you saying pineapple pizza is the best pizza. Some people say the the was it LA has a different types of pizza, right? The thick pizza. I don't know. So what is the real pizza for me? Uh, that is not that is not a question. Like that's not a question for like a five minute conversation. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, I love pizza in a way that you know it's. I wouldn't say there is like one kind of pizza, but I can tell you this for sure: pizza must have a good um, base. Base. The base is. I think a lot of the times people forget how important the base is. It's not what well, I can tell you. What it's not. It's not just a plate to put all the toppings on the top. Um, for me, it's it's somewhat about math, like math. It's like um, ingredients. It's like numbers. You have to have the good ratio of crust to topping. Yeah. It, it has to be firm enough. For you to hold that piece of pizza up, and then it will stay up. It cannot be kind of like this soft. Really? Like, you know, it, for me, it was the difficulty of eating it. That is the problem. Like when it flops, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, the toppings fall out, and, and then and, and it becomes wasteful <laughs> for me. For me, I'm a lazy. I'm a really lazy in terms of that. I like to like for the New York pizza. I would pick it up. Do the fold in the center okay, and yeah, try yeah. to do that. I can't eat. Um, I can't have a pizza, a slice of pizza, where things keep falling off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it has to be somewhat stuck on the cheese or at least on the bread. 
it also doesn't need to be too many things. I think sometimes if you put um, toppings that are too chunky, you don't get to try everything in every bite. So I love it when it's Italian sausage because they come in smaller crumbs yeah. so that you can scatter it across the top. Pepperoni, you can kind of spread it across the top, and cheese and sauce and you all that. You make me hungry now. <laughs> well, then I have done my job. You know, it's. Um, I think a good pizza should always have um, a crust, like a base that tastes like bread. It could be a very very thin crust, almost like. If you try to do a thin crust, it has to be crisp. Like you have to be able to hear yourself crunching into that. Uh, if you try to do, say, sourdough pizza, then the pizza has to have, um, you know, a nice crust. The ring around the side it has to be chewy, but cooked through. <laughs> like it doesn't taste yeah. raw. It has to cook through. If you have a good oven, you should be able to do some. Caramelization at the top, so a little bit toasty bits, you know, a little bit charring. Um, yeah, and it's for me, it it's people who appreciate pizza will always appreciate the crust as much as the topping. As much as the topping, you you cannot have a good pizza without eating the crust. So now we we come back to the questions. Like I don't know how much you can answer right <laughs> or like without oh, where is the best right. pizza in Hong Kong? Uh, Which restaurant that we can try hmm. best pizza? Can we have like four or five? Like I think I've let's say top three hmm. without uh, putting them in one, two, three, whatever. Like because I I I'm on a quest of trying the best pizza after you telling me this all the stories about the crust. Okay. Um, okay, oh, going to be a, <laughs> a lot of people. Um, no, if you can, I, I don't want to put you in, in a situation that <laughs> no bias to anyone. Just oh like, no, 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 no. Um, I'm. I have very defined um, places that I go to because um, I wrote, you know, on, on Tatler. I did write where you can find a good pizza uh, a year ago, and but then there are more pizza places now, so I, I can't do three, maybe five. Okay, I, I, I will justify okay, my answer okay, for you. Five. I will justify my okay. answer for you. Why? Um, the Pizza Project. Okay. From the Pirata. From Pirata um, Their crust is thin. They try to do. They try to do a thin crust pizza, and it worked because they know how to do it in in the kind of oven that kind of facilitates the cooking. So whenever they come, it's usually really crisp. And the topping, it doesn't fall off. Like it's it. So you can just hold it and you can just bite it. You can do for the camera. <laughs> um, you don't have to fold because the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the ring, the side is crispy. So you cannot really fold it, but you will be able to kind of pick it up like um, like a piece of paper. You pick it up and all the topping will still be on the top, yeah. kind of piling up, but it doesn't fall off. It does. The, the base is crisp and crisp and kind of like a cracker oh enough for you to hold the topping without it falling off and then you eat like this <laughs> and the great thing about a thin crust pizza like that is that the filling and also the crust is tasty but the filling can also be evenly spread throughout so that by the time you finish eating the center and then you work all the way to the rim 
the filling will still be flavoring the rim as well. So it's all about the proportion. Oh my god! I was I was just thinking. I said, "Oh my god!" Because I've been eating uh, pizza and pizza project a lot of time, but never experienced the way you explained to me. Like I'm gonna do that next time. I'm just gonna go. It's like, <laughs> we, we need we need to do it with the the, the thing with pizza again. It it has to be like I feel really bored. I mean, it's something that you can eat the whole pizza yeah. on your own. But pizza should always be something that you share with, say, at least one more person. So you can get two, two different pizza. ones yeah. and then you can share, right? Um, so that's number one. Um, I like hmm, uh, Gustachi. Gustachi Pizza Lounge at PMQ. Yep. Yep. So, uh, uh, just, yeah, I just ate like a four, three weeks ago. Yeah. So Angelo, like they have these kind of, they are very loungy, like with the music and everything. But the pizza is good. You know, the the dough is slowly fermented, so it's like something that's a little bit uh, chewier. Like it has that little uh, more doughy and more kind of slow fermentation, very um, a little bit sour and a little bit chewier, you know, that kind of dough I like. But they are not, they're, they're, they're the floppy kind. Yeah. Oh. But the good thing about that floppy kind is that the topping, when you apply the topping on it, the toppings are not super juicy. So even if it flops, it will stay on. Like if it's juicy it's, and it's it a has a lot of water, the cheese it problem. starts yeah, slipping, yeah. right? They don't do that. So, and they don't try to ram everything on the top. Like it doesn't make it look like, you know, it's everywhere. Um, so that's that. So Gustachi is a good place. But then their pizza tends to be quite big. So you kind of have to share. However, Gustachi does make a good calzone. And it's basically, you know, like a giant pizza pocket yeah. with lots of cheese in it. That, you can have it on your own. But a pizza, I think you'll have to share. Um, what else? Uh, oh, that's tricky. Uh, I like Little Napoli in Happy Valley. So, so I, I, it's I a newer yeah, place. But I've only had it once. But it's it was good because... I bought it, and then because it's a takeout uh, restaurant, like it doesn't have seating, so I picked up the pizza, and then I just move on to the park bench, and then me and my friend starts eating. Uh, pizza is their pizza is good, you know. The crust is a little bit thicker, um, but I like that they are a little bit more uh, less conventional in terms of pizzas. Like their pizza, um, they have one with the rosemary and also potatoes on it. And potatoes on yes. Oh, I have never tried a pizza it's, with it's potatoes. It's lighter. Actually. It's lighter, but it's it's not so tomato. But it's I I also like you see potatoes, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> they are not um, not French fries tomato okay. potato, but more like a little little like uh, roasted potatoes, and then because there's also rosemary on it and there's some cheese, it's a little bit lighter. It almost tastes like a little bit uh, of like a fondue. You have a cheese, and then there's also crispy bread, and then, you know, the bread is a little bit chewy, and it comes up piping hot. And because you're eating it, you... This is the, the one thing I don't like about pizza packaging, is that they come in a box yeah. made of cardboard. And because it has thickness, it traps all the moisture. So if you close the box, 
and go home with the box. It By the time you reopen, everything will no longer be crispy. So that's why I like to eat in. Um, but Little Napoli, I think it's it's one of the good newer pizza places to have. So let's um, yeah three. Which we're gonna try next yes. time. Yes, uh, I'm sure there are more. Oh yes, speaking of pineapple pizzas, um, there's this one place with pineapple pizzas that I really don't mind eating more. It's um, this place in Causeway Bay. It's called Mother of Pizzas. It's it's on Layton Road. Mother's Pizza. Mother yeah, yeah, Pizza. I eat it there. It's, I eat there. It's, it's right right across yeah. from that giant tree in Causeway Bay on Layton Road. So they 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 have all these kind of local guys making pizza, and they were all um, really busy making dough. You know, they were they're pretty busy. They're they pretty were busy. really yeah, yeah. busy all the time, and they display all the pizzas at the front. And then there was. That was the first time I ever saw pineapple pizza with so much pineapple on it. But <laughs> um, well, you like it? Um, I I was eating it. I, no, I was looking at it. I was like, oh, there's so much pineapple on it. It's basically um, just a slice of pizza with like they cut the pineapple into strips. So it's obviously they put some thought into it, and they realize if you put chunks. It won't work because either it will fall off because it's too heavy, or it will be just too juicy. So if you cut them into kind of little strips, um, like like half the pinky finger thickness, and then you scatter it across the top, and then you go into the um, oven, the heat will quickly caramelize the top, so you get a little bit of charred bits on the pineapple. Um, and then when it comes out, you will still be able to get the kind of this really sweet, like barbecue pineapple kind of flavor, which is sweet and a little bit of toasty. But you can also get the pizza underneath, and the cheese will stick the pineapple on the pizza, yeah. so it's not nothing is going to fall off. And I, for me, that's good. Yeah, um, I, I've been there. See, one of our friend, uh, Cherry, if you're listening to this, see her, uh, see and her husband actually own that place. Oh, yeah, nice. and uh, uh, it was good, good experience. I've been there once. So that's that's number four. Hmm. Now we have one more to go. Um, where would I go for pizza these days? Oh. Um, I do like Emmer quite a bit. Well, that's number. Uh, we do Pizza Project, Gustachi. Little, little Ita- Napoli. Little Napoli. I think. I think. I think. Uh, mother of pizza. Mother of pizza. Mother of pizza. I think Emmer. Um, there's something about Emmer in Admiralty. Because I want to say this about Emmer because they um, they make their own flour. Yeah. Oh so, really? Yeah. Yeah. They they Emmer. The name Emmer is also a grain, the ancient grain. Something, um, you know, they use this. And like really, really old type of grain, and then they mill their own flour to make the dough. So that that's quite something. Um, and then there's this also this um, this idea of you know making the pizza, especially for Hong Kong. You know, Emmer is something that opens specifically specifically for Hong Kong, and um, they take a lot of consideration into how you serve the pizza. 
um, and also you know the whole procedure. They are all well calculated. You see, um, a lot of the pizza places, like pizzerias, they will serve you the pizza on a wooden board, and that's not good. That's really? usually not very good. It's something to do with a pizza being so hot from the oven, and then they directly migrate that into a wooden board, which is not hot. And because the wooden board will absorb the moisture yeah. from the pizza, so the base will not be crispy. That makes sense. Yeah, unless you eat it right away, right? But nowadays, everybody wants to take photos and, <laughs> want to, and rearrange it, and and then you get the soggy pizza base. So wooden board is not really good. If you use a plate, even if you warm the plate, it will still be a different temperature as the pizza, and and then again, it will soften the crust. But the one at Emmer, they use a very thin aluminum plate, which can also be warmed up quite a bit. So whenever you put a hot pizza onto a metal plate, and then you serve it like with a stand, kind of like you know that's kind of this three layer, three tier afternoon tea yeah, yeah. stands. But it's sort of like that, but it's sort of like a little elevated tin, so that the metal plate rests on the on the rack. It doesn't touch the table. The table is cold. If you put the metal plate onto the table, it oh. immediately gets cold, and the pizza will get. So cold. that's what they do in Emmer. Uh, they do in Emmer. I think there are a couple of places that also does that. Wow. But metal plate and metal rack, elevated, not touching the table. I think Emmer is one of the more pioneers for that, and it's and it's great because. It feels like like it it will sound like they were trying to save space because tables are small. Yeah. But if you come to think of it, it makes sense. You know, not everybody can have can just wolf down pizza slices right away. They will I want. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if I'm hungry, I probably can too. But it's like if you want to take your time. Being able to eat your second or third slice of pizza when it's still warm, it's important because the, you know, you want the temperature to continue to be somewhat warm, in order for the cheese not to kind of get all set and congealed. You want the crust to remain crispy. You know, it's. I think it's important, and I think Emmer is doing a good job on that. And I think they are also one of the few. Local pizzeria to have the Georgian cacciapuri, I think it's called. It, a cacciapuri. It's what's it's, that? It's it's a Geor- It's from Georgia, the country. Um, so it, it's sort of like a pizza. It's like a pizza that looks like an eye. It's it's like this olive shape. Like it. It's think of it like a boat, like a boat shape yeah. pizza, um, with more dough on each side. Like it really does look like an eye shape. Um, they usually have different kind of filling in the middle, and then they have an egg in the middle. So it really does look like an eye, a giant eye. But at this Georgian pizza, um, I don't think a lot of um, Hong Kong pizzeria has that, but Emmer has that one on the menu, and I've I've had it. It's good. It's good. So, but it's it's just a name and shape is different, but technically it's a cheese, tomatoes, and. Uh, I didn't think there were tomatoes in it, but uh, um, the one I tried had spinach and some herbs on it, and also egg. So it's a little bit like like a eggs Florentine, but it it tastes it tastes good, and it's think of it like um like a different kind of pizza. Yeah. 
It's uh, more flat, like, right? I, yeah. I, we have done. Uh, oh, we invited, but this is the first time actually we're talking about food. <laughs> but I, and then I'm, and I'm extremely hungry. Um, I wanted to ask you what is the trend, and I, I actually I wanted to talk about the your um, project about the, the project the, the jam that okay. you make. Cool. I've tried mango. Uh, mm. I want to try the lemon one that you just. Nice. It's a the, it's a local lemon, I guess, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, local lemon grow in Hong Kong. Yes. Really? Uh, new territories. No way. You long come team. Uh, well, uh, I've been fortunate to what as part of my job. You know, you meet with so many people, like chefs, farmers, um, you know, different people that do different crazy things. And like for me, a crazy thing would be to have fruit grown in Hong Kong. Yeah. As it turned out, there are so many different farms in new territories. Yeah, that they that, are. Yeah. You know, and it's not just that they grow lemons. Like for, for the longest time, we thought, oh, these are local lemons. Mm, they don't look quite like the supermarket lemons that you normally have. They look like this giant things that smell like citrus, but they're not quite pomelos. Um, and those are lemon. They're lemons. They are really big, and some species of local lemons, they are actually a thicker peel, sort of like um, what the Italians would call the cedro, which is um, cedrat, which is a different family of citrus. They are greener. Um, the, the color part, like the green and yellow part on the outside, is um, pretty much the same, but the white part inside the lemon tends to be really thick. And the flesh inside is really small. So it's, it's not really good for juicing, but in terms of making jams, like preserving, uh, you know, adding sugar to cook the peel that turns from white to transparent, and then all the sugar will go into the peel, and then you get this really candy um, texture. You know, that is actually great. You know, it's great fruit for that. Yeah, I haven't and tried yet. We're gonna try. I tried the mango one before they gave it to me. So, how do you start it? That's um, Ooh, yeah. That's a long time. Uh, I started it when I was still in Canada, so it was a long. Also, oh, you've been making uh, jams for long time. Um, then, is okay. It? Here's the thing. I started to think about it. Oh, okay. When I was in Canada, yeah. it, it all started with. Um, university. So, you know, when you were having your finals, everyone study really crazy. They go all night, you know, all that. And you don't really go out when you have exams. You kind of stay in, you buy all your food. It's sort of like now, you know, you buy all your food and you stuck at home. But um, you study and um, the great thing about this jam in North America, the jam culture has been so strong, is that people will buy quite a number of it and then when you want to eat it you kind of take them out from you know pantry and for us we had that pantry space and I have this jar of jam that was given to me by a friend whose mother made it like the mother has been making it for like 30 years what kind of jam was it the flavor? it was peach oh, okay so because we were in Toronto and then the province of Ontario they produce good apples they also have good peaches in the summer. So they made peach jam and gave it to me as a present. And I thought, ooh, 
peach jam. Uh, it's probably <laughs> not very good. I'm not really particularly fans of peaches, but oh, they look kind of nice. It's an orange color. So I kind of put it away. And then during my finals, I looked at the jam. I looked at my pantry to see what's there to eat. And there it was, this jar of orange thing. And it says peach on it. So I decided, hey, let's just grab some toast and then make some toast. Um, and I vividly remember this one moment where I hold the jar, which is about the size of this, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so I hold the jar and then I looked at the color, which is kind of still this um, more of a rusty orange color, which is very different. You know, a lot of gems that we normally get is like blueberries or mixed berry, which is very dark. But this peach is sort of like this attractive orangey color. And then you open it, you hear the crack of the jar because they seal them. So it has a sound when the lid opens and then you open it and then you immediately smell peach. Wow. It was like cutting into fruit, basically. Or, or you get the same kind of um, sensation when you... Um, say, open a soda, yeah. you know, or open a bottle of wine, wine. you immediately get that flavor of that fruit or that wine coming out right away. And that was the moment when I was thinking, hey, this really smells nice. And it was just peach and lemon and sugar and nothing else. No vanilla, no anything. And then I, I of course, I used a knife, which is big mistake because it was not like a jelly okay. it was more kind of thicker gravy kind of um think of a thicker gravy type jam and i use a spoon when you use a spoon it the, the experience was very different when you scoop with a spoon it really feels like you are scooping into a really ripe peach that consistency is very hard to make so I scoop and then spread it on toast and then eat it and it really does taste like summer that was you know that was the experience that was then. the moment where I thought wow in the middle of this Canadian winter which I'm sure a lot of people can understand it's basically six months of winter and it's like cold minus I don't know minus uh, 20 yeah, minus it's like around like zero to two degrees oh, okay um, normal and then you'll have like minus 30 as well so in the dead of winter really grey everyone is everywhere it's like windy and snowy and cold bleak winter you get this really orangey really sunny which tastes like summer and then you eat it and you taste the sweetness you taste you know you even have a little small chunks of peaches it's it's a different kind of experience. It takes you back to summer. Yeah. And I was like, hey, maybe it wouldn't be too difficult to make that. And then I realized how difficult it was. I've failed so many times. I've burned so many different batches of jam, strawberries, raspberries, peaches. I've done so many different failed experiments. Um, but then, you know, I forgot about it for a while and then moved back to Hong Kong, you know, um, you know, after a few years. And then I got into food writing. Yeah. I got into writing and then I have the opportunities to work with chefs and work with people who make jams and cocktails like yourself. Um, and the thing is, I, be I begin to have this jam thing again, 
when um, you know, all of a sudden people ask me, where would you, what kind of breakfast would you eat? Yeah. And at that time, it was oatmeal. Yeah, it w- really wasn't my favorite I hate thing. Oatmeal. <laughs> it's not my I favorite thing. How people can eat that in the morning? Yeah, <laughs> it's not my favorite thing. But um, and then some people mention, hey, you can you know if you have some good jam, you can just scoop some jam into your oatmeal, a little tiny spoonful of jam. It will make oatmeal better. And then I, I thought about it. Hey, hey, maybe it will be good to try making jam again. And then I started. And then you start with strawberry, raspberry, mixed berry, and then move slowly towards doing more. You know, peaches, apricots, um, oranges, you know, citrus. And, and then as I become slightly better at it, um, I try to, you know, order um, more unusual fruits. Um, that I will only normally see it on, say, TV programs or cookbooks. Or maybe see a uh, seasonal ingredient. What do you think? Oh, oh. I think I, I don't know how be. much I understand about the, the jam, shrubs. Those are, uh, uh, let's say, fermentation. Those are actually uh, the things were born back in the days. We didn't have freezes. So people want to keep and preserve those mm. for, to, let's say, the, the berries. Maybe they exist in the winter, but they want to try on the s- summer, right? Like, they just want to keep it. That's the idea that you got. it. So what... The one um, experience in Canada, which yes. I don't know how many years ago, mm. and <laughs> and then you suddenly wow. got that uh, in your experience, and then you start making it, right? You start yeah. making it. Mm-hmm. I wanted. To, I tried mango. It's pretty good. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, actually, I my kids also tried. It. Oh, <laughs> <great>. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, now, what is your? Uh, uh, the plan for the jam. How do you want to? Do you want to make it only for your friends and family like us, special people, <laughs> or you want to do it as a, more on a on a branding, or you want to sell it on a on a? I don't, I don't know. What's, so, what's your plan for the for your beauty? What's the name of you uh, if you want to call it? Because we're just calling it jam until now. There's no yeah. okay mango jam, uh, lemon jam. Do you have a name for this? Okay, here's the thing. When I left my job, yeah. when I left my job, uh, about a little over a year ago, everyone at the old company already knows that this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, you know, because they all know that if I had a full-time job, as in, like, if I do this full-time, I wouldn't be able to do this jam on the side. Like, yeah. it's, it's just, it takes <laughs> up to way too much work. Um, to make a batch of jam, it usually takes a couple of hours. Yeah. And usually that makes a couple of jars. That's it, yeah. That's it. So it could be anything between two hours for mixed berry jam to six to eight hours for um, citrus. Yeah. Because, you know, all the prep work and everything. So the thing is, I've always known that this is something I want to pursue. And in order to do that, I think selling you know, to the public, eventually, this is the plan. Um, I will need to do a little bit of branding. I have some idea what I want to name it. Okay. But it will also have to be, I have to decide whether or not it's going to be only an English name or only a Chinese or or both. Um, Why not both? Maybe, you know, like since you you know how to write. (laughs) I'm telling you, for both, you have to find a really... 
um, catchy name, the simple yeah, but yeah, catchy yeah, yeah. name sure. for both languages, and that is hard. You know, I've, I've been trying to, you know, look it up on the dictionary. Man, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely can come out, can't come out with that thing. But I mean, I can just call it fruity, you know, but that, that, that wouldn't have quite as much of a message that I want to give. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've written down some names, but, you know, we're I still don't have to explain to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, but eventually, I think... So you have um, a plan eventually to bring it out to the market and let slowly, the people try it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I've already started doing something with it. So I've made... Um, I've done some collaborations uh, the past year, yeah. in 2021. I've done um, thanks to Gerald from um, Elephant Grounds yeah. and their page chef Ian. They have been really keen on getting me on board to do a collaboration with them. So I did, last year I did an ice cream sandwich, which the coffee shop Elephant Grounds they did in Shenghua. Um, it's all over Hong Kong. Oh really? Actually. So they wanted me to make a jam to do with um, their chai tea ice cream for an ice cream sandwich. So I made um, a pear jam, a pear, because um, it's winter. So I made pears, uh, a pears, I did pears with lemon and also Ceylon cinnamon. Because um, the Ceylon, the Sri Lankan cinnamon yeah. is a different kind as the Vietnamese one that you normally get. Yeah, I think Sri Lankan one is more uh, more cinnamon cinnamon because if you go to Vietnamese, there are more Chinese ones. They, what yeah, they call cassia. Uh, bar. Cassia, yeah, yeah. yeah. So cassia is the one you use in five spice and you add that into, you know, flavors like five spice and pho and everything, yeah. like more broth flavoring. But the Ceylon cinnamon is also a stronger cinnamon flavor, even though it's not as sweet. Yeah. Um, so that goes really well into the pear jam. And then the pear jam w- was paired with a chai tea ice cream and also two cookies. And that becomes sort of like an unexpected bestseller. Do they still have it? No. They, oh, okay. That's the thing. With Elephant Grounds, they change every month. Yeah. So for that month, I made a couple of batches of jams for them. Uh, and, you know, they sell. And... I was really surprised because nobody really liked pears. <laughs> like nobody I know liked pears quite as much. Um, we normally have pears with blue cheese, yeah. and then you normally have pears on its own, or sometimes you know you just have pears in picnics. That's it. Yeah. Um, and then I also you know took a break, and then we went to this restaurant called Beidou yeah, yeah. and um, Shangwan. And their chef, uh, Corey Riches, have been um, really enthusiastic. He was like, hey, I heard you made this jam for the ice cream sandwich. Like, <laughs> you want to do something for me? And I was like, yeah, but you're like a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern restaurant. What, what do you want me to make? Uh, I mean, I want to make apricots, but, you know, nobody likes apricots. Uh, I mean, people love apricots, but when I think about jam, let me tell you honestly, when I think about jam... The first thing I memorize apricot. I don't know. The problem <laughs> with apricot jam locally is that we were we grew up eating the not very good kind. So if you introduce really good apricots into making good apricot jam, the, the conventional standard of quality apricot jam is not the kind that we eat or growing up. The kind we eat growing up is more jelly and it's kind of firm. 
good kind of apricot because apricots don't have a lot of pectin, so it doesn't set quite firm. Oh, maybe so it's more scoopable. Maybe scoopable. Right? So it will be fantastic on ice cream, I have to say, and it's also very good on you know pastry. So what I did with Corey at Beidou is that we um, he did a milfoy with a fennel and vanilla cream filling, and I made a spiced blueberry jam to go with the milfoy. So because he has fennel and vanilla and butter for the milfoy, um, I do a contrasting kind of purplish blue blueberry jam with um, spice. So it was uh, black pepper, lemon, and sumac. Sumac is a very uh, Turkish, uh, Middle Eastern, yeah. Mediterranean, is it? Yeah. But sumac is also a berry. They are not a f- they are not a spice. They are yeah. they are not um, a seed. They are berry that's dried up and then all and ground up. And make it powder, yeah. So when you taste sumac on its own, it's this really um, pungently sour. Flavor. It almost like eating, um, I don't know, like biting into a lemon, like yeah. biting into lemon, but also a little bit woody. But if you put that into a jam, it adds that tartness, like that sour flavor. It enhances it, but it doesn't make it like lemon. It sort of gives you that more depth into you know. Oh, you taste that blueberry jam. It really does taste very berry-like. But then there's also something underneath, and that's sumac. Oh, um, so they had that? Uh, they had that for, I think, two months, and then a new season come along, and then yeah. they change it to other things. So I've done that for two months, and um, I think for 2022, uh, I'm, it, it's not confirmed yet, but I'm really testing out a batch uh, of maybe one or two kinds of jam that I want to do at a local shop. Yeah. I can't tell you which one yet, yeah, yeah, but it's, sure, it, this sure. local shop has been really kind to be saying that, oh, we have this product that we're selling and we want to have your jam to go with it. Yeah. So I'm doing that. Okay, that's so cool. The, the, I mean, if I'm, I'm, I'm doing testing batches and I'm doing a lot of uh, different experimentation. Sure. And you know, people like you yeah, and that's you know, a lot of other friends, they will test it out for me. Like, I will offer them... The, the, usually what happened for the past, and, and just like for the past couple of years, it has always been about um, my restaurant experience or my bar experience. Say I tasted... Um, it was like a gimlet. I had a gimlet, and it was... Ooh, this lime flavor was so good. And then it was also... Say I had a passion fruit and mango margarita i forgot where it was yeah. but it it sounds great you know and then i asked the bartender what goes into it and they told me they broke it down for me and then i said hey how about i make this a jam version of it and then you use the same ingredients yes yeah. different proportion you change it into a jam form you kind of you know alter the recipe a little bit the proportion a little bit and then it becomes passion fruit and mango margarita jam. Yeah. No, I was going to say, if you have anything that you want us to try and make a cocktail, uh, we are more than willing to do it. That is definitely that will be that definitely going to happen. And I want to ask you a very, um, very serious question. Not a serious question. Is 
what do you think the trend in in especially I would say if Hong Kong is a place that actually the trend comes second fast, same as like iPhone, right? Let's say mm-hmm. iPhone comes to stage first. Let's say iPhone 13 is coming probably there and in Singapore, Hong Kong, right? We are kind of uh, uh, the top five city in the world that get everything before anyone else can get. The food trend <laughs> as because I see uh, back in the days we I don't know like five six years ago even in the drinks people wanted to see very okay they wanted to see dry eyes they wanted to see um, you know I don't know like they wanted to see like like a albuli kind of you know albuli mm-hmm. kind of style of food but now when I see more food more restaurant I don't know maybe bar also I don't I don't want to talk about bars and drinks <laughs> I always that's I always want to stay away from the podcast uh, from in this podcast so when people come to a now people start to realizing like they wanted to go more, you know, like more simple, more uh, authentic. That's the mm-hmm. word I guess I was, yeah. I was looking for. Authentic. That means they wanted to try something that actually s- three ingredients, mm-hmm. nothing yeah. else, right? More classic way I would say. So do you think that's going to be a trend? Just my uh, my my curiosity about mm, the food trend. A food trend. I I don't think it's it's only a restaurant experience kind of trend um, it has something to do with the food yeah. obviously the service obviously but also the experience the dining experience like the dining experience on the whole people have wanted to re-experience what it is to eat out to eat in restaurants we've been stuck at home for so long yeah you know you know when things open oh. up again yeah, yeah, yeah. The restaurant experience does not always include tablecloth and really fine dining service. It doesn't always mean that. It also means that, you know, you can be a casual bistro style yeah. restaurant. There are quite a lot of restaurants, like even newer restaurants, newcomers, independent restaurants, they have managed to pull off that, yeah, yeah, that kind sure. of um, dining. You know, it doesn't really have to be all strict kind of you have to sit up and kind of mumble you know you can't really talk loud and that's not my kind of style yeah uh, i don't mind it but at the same time you know dining out it's such a big part of hong kong um yeah that's true uh, that's true for locals definitely that's the thing they they don't did i would say i don't know uh, i i was if, if my experience local people usually don't cook at home it's mm-hmm. very rare. Yeah. Um, even if you cook, occasionally you'll want to come out and eat. And I think the experience to be reassured that you are having all the, your customers' experience at heart, like you want to take care of them. They want to be taken care of. Um, you know, everything from um, more attentive surfaces yeah. and also a menu that occasionally changes but not changing all the time but you know you re-examine the menu to kind of take out all the things that are not really that popular yeah. or things that are more seasonal if if there is one thing that we are seeing a lot is that the seasonality becomes um, less of a catchphrase but more of something that you can practice you can be practical on um, the local doesn't only mean that you are 
eating things from within Hong Kong. Yeah. But you can also use things that are in China and also in Taiwan and also close, say, um, you know, it, it doesn't always have to specially fly in from Europe or fly in from South America or Australia. I think it has something to do with um, being conscious of um, the origin and why you're using that product. Um, it has, you know, it is every bit about eating local, you know, sustainability, and also why you decided to put that on the plate. Um, in terms of dishes and food, like you said, like cocktails, people are looking for plates that are maybe four or five ingredients yeah. max. Like you can do different things with carrots and it will still be good. Like unless you don't like carrots, yeah. then that's, that's something else. Thing. But um, I was doing a story with um, Ash Salmon from Roganic. And we, in the interview, we talked about um, how he is really excited about this new carrot dish where he uses carrots in different forms and in different execution. And there's this thing about carrots is that my sister doesn't eat carrots. But when she hears about this carrot dish, she may want to try. I think that's important. And um, it's now, the carrot dish is now on the new menu. Um, you know, I'm, I can't wait to try them because, you know, it, it sounded so good. If it makes you hungry, it's probably a good dish. Yeah. If it kind of fits into um, the kind of dining experience that you're looking for, and if it, if, and more importantly, if it restores your uh, faith into believing that restaurants today that survive after COVID can, you know, have a place to stay open, you know, you should go. I think I think it's it's all about giving so, back to yeah, the industry. So know? so let me break it down for you. Thank you and thank you for that. Actually, giving back to industry is very good thing. But the, I I so getting back to so there'll be um, people looking for experience because they've been stuck in a quite while. Mm. And second, they're looking for as you mentioned, mm. it'll be a trend of sustainability, which has been always there. Uh, it's, which is a good thing. Look, we need to definitely think about it and do something that we can do from our side. Not being pretentious or just to be in social media, but in really doing and change something. And third is, what do you mention? Is the, the simple dish, yeah, yeah, simple yeah. ingredients. Three things we can take it. But I was going to say, if the things get normal, do you really think the Hong Kong people are going to stay in Hong Kong? At least for like, because they're going to be traveling. Ah. They're going to be traveling. I'm going to make this really official here. Yeah. You can quote me on that one. The minute things open up, yeah. normal, the first thing I'm going to do is to book tables to eat out. Okay. I am very sure that every one of my friends really? who want to fly That's out... That's good news for us. <laughs> everyone who wants to fly out will fly out. And that's the best time to eat at restaurants. So we have a less, less waiting list. We will list. no longer need to wait for four months to eat at, you know, popular restaurants. Yeah. You know, I'm sure for every restaurant goer in Hong Kong, we all have this small little Excel file, like a spreadsheet of all the restaurants that we've been marking down that we want to go when <laughs> things go back to normal. And 
I mean, I have that spreadsheet, and my spreadsheet has pages because um, I'm a very light drinker. You know that I hardly ever drink like a few cocktails. So, but there are still you know places that I want to go to or. Places that I know will be opening later in the year, and I want to mark it down. Like maybe potentially write about them, or maybe you know schedule myself into going. So you are know. ready to go out. I have waited I uh, one restaurant. I want to mention this is a Japanese restaurant for three months to eat. Uh, I booked out the table. Okay. And but this happened, right? Mm. So yeah. <laughs> they still offer. Hey, do you want to come at the uh, afternoon and then eat and drink? I was like, I'm good, man. But I, I still moved that to April. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, by the time things get normal, I probably able to eat there because I have waited. I have n- have never waited to eat to any places until now. Like you know, because usually when you say, oh, but we don't have a table, I say, okay, it's fine, I'm okay. But when I was like, okay, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait two or three months. <laughs> I'm still gonna eat. It, I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'm still waiting. Um, my so I have a group of friends, um, and we all used to do um, either media or marketing or like they we we all used to be in media and marketing. So there is a giant group of twenty to thirty people in that one WhatsApp group, where we know what we normally did a couple of years ago when we set up the group was to exchange details. So if Say I write about a new restaurant, or I heard about a new restaurant, then we'll share the information. So I need to be in that group. Now. So different <laughs> complication. I'm sure your bartenders have a certain group too. So uh, all the journalists will share information, and you know, say if I write about a new restaurant, and they didn't say the restaurant hasn't had any Chinese press, and I'm happy to share with them. Then I'll share the information. Hey, hey, this is a new restaurant. Maybe you guys want to do something with them, and they will do the same with Chinese coverage. Uh, so we kind of exchange contacts and we exchange kind of stories. We help each other out. And this thirty people group, like some people already move um, Taiwan, UK, US, but we eventually still have a strong group of people who are constantly messaging each other. Um, so through COVID. Our support system has been, hey, where did you get your new mask or where did yeah. you get your new test kit? Yeah, it has become more or less like that. Um, but then this group of people, this we have this very core team of eight people, and that eight people, including me, we all we always used to go out and eat together. So it will for Chinese, it will be a giant table of eight. For when the dining restrictions was happening, it was two tables of four and four tables of twos. We have made it all the way through. Oh, really? Yeah. We have always gone to restaurants together, and then the fifth wave come, and then it becomes too much trouble, and then we stop going all together. I, I, I hope the the fifth wave will over soon, which we already. I don't know when we're gonna launch. Uh, I, I this think podcast? Were, I think they were going. I think they are going to do something. If if everything goes right, you know, um, it will be. They will slowly ease back into you know opening up. 10 p.m. on restaurant. until 10 p.m. four per table yeah. on April 21st tentatively. So it was. Yeah, but you know, I when when the press conference came out, 
um, yesterday, <laughs> we were already getting the, the, the eight people group already started with the messages. Can we, um, so where are we going to go when things are easier? And I thought, oh, I think, you know, it's a month away. And then I realized people are already starting to start book book restaurants and people are getting, you know, I've already been hearing from, you know, chefs and whatever, um, you know, restaurant people, they were already saying that, oh, yeah, ever since that, you know, ever since the press conference finishes, the announcements came out and the phone starts ringing and then the email starts coming in and say that, oh, I want to book on April 21st. I was like, wow. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So, um, I can pretty much say sushi places will continue to be full. <laughs> They're small. There's but the, I, I'm the spaces you, is small. Sushi places man. have been, you know, this one thing that upsets me the most is because, you know, when you look on to social media, you look at, hey, this is like, oh, that's sardine season now in Japan. And then you were like, oh, I want this so bad. And then I tried to order it. And then they said, oh, you have to wait for three months. And like your three-month wait will be, um, there will be a table for you on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Like it will be like, and by the time maybe the sardines will not there yes, in the menu. They will. T- <laughs> they also will add. They will book you in, but mind you, by the time you come, there will no longer be any sardines. And then you thought, hey, do I really want that? <laughs> like you want to wait three months and then realize that it's not going to be there. So that—that um, that is always a disappointment. But then, coming to think of it. When everybody is flying off to Japan, I can yeah, probably. I can take a break. Probably, yeah. Man, thank you, uh, thank you for um, coming and uh, sharing with us. It was thank actually you. very, very good conversation that we have. But before you leave, I wanted to tell me your the best the food that you like. If you have the last food since you're foodie, what is the the, the food that I really liked? The food that you. Let's say tomorrow is today's your last day. Oh, oh, oh the last <laughs> meal. Last meal. How last many meal. courses can I have? <laughs> well, like, no, no, just make just, it two. Two things. Make it two things. Um, oh, God, that's going to be tough. Um, do mm. I have to cook it? No, no. So, oh, maybe uh, the someone, best chef in the world will cook okay. it for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, my mom. <laughs> this, is, this is a really weird thing. Is that every... So there, there's just a small story here. My mom used to make chicken wings yeah. when I was growing up. And she would cook that with lemons. So it was like soy sauce. And then they would marinate soy sauce, wine and everything. And then they will cook it with fresh lemons in it. She would cut slices of lemon and just cook it in the sauce and then just let it simmer. So the whole chicken wing situation will have sauce, like a gravy sauce. Um, it will be sweet and also salty and sour because of the lemons. So I would like to eat that. That would be the dish. However, ever since I started making jams, my mom has adopted my jam thing into her chicken wings. By making the same chicken wings, but instead of sugar, she would add some of the the lemon marmalade into the sauce to make it sweeter and more kind of more gravy-like. So I will eat that. 
can't wait to try like, like I don't know what you try it, jam in it. Definitely. Uh, that sounds amazing. And good steamed rice. Good steamed rice. I think between kanji and steamed rice, I think steamed rice will forever be that one thing that I can never say no. I, I, I can that. give up bread, I think. <laughs> but <laughs> rice is really we, cannot. We Asian love our rice. Man. We Asian love our oh, yeah. It has to be a perfect bowl. Well, if it's my last meal, I wouldn't mind having five. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but it, it has to be good steamed rice. Uh, no, thank you. Rice. Great, cool. man. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for being me. with us. I really, really enjoyed it. And thank you, you actually gave us some good tips that was, what we should we do when we um, things get normal. But I don't know when we're going to uh, um, we gonna go live with this podcast, hopefully uh, soon. But yeah, okay. thank you. Yeah. Thank if, you very much. Um, you want to follow... My Instagram that would be yes. great as well. It's What's happy, your Instagram? Really? It's Happy Quince, um, H A P P Y, and Quince is Q U I N C E. So um, Quince is actually also a fruit um, in you know in Europe. It's it's really hard. It's very difficult to eat it raw because it's also very sour. So that is the favorite fruit of mine to cook because you know the Quince it's something that's kind of unseemly and kind of ugly on the outside but once you cook it it turns into this pinkish uh, orangey brown color and it kind of smells really floral and it's really sweet so uh, i'm hoping that this is something of a transformation that everybody will get when they try to love food and they appreciate yeah. food and then they get happy perfect thank, thank you. you thank Great. you again thank you mm-hmm.